as they are to amend statutes to align them with the national security law. That's all the news from RTHK. Railways and major roads that link the urban areas and new development areas are closely related to our economy and livelihood. To meet future development and logistics needs, the government has launched the Strategic Studies on Railways and Major Roads Beyond 2030 to create a major transport infrastructure blueprint for Hong Kong. You are welcome to share your views on the proposed schemes on or before March 31, 2023. Visit rmr2030plus.hk for more. Hello, happy Saturday, and welcome to the week on three. Today, with me, Phil Whelan. For half an hour, every Saturday morning, we'd like to replay a few Radio 3 bits and pieces for you from the past week that you might enjoy listening to again, over breakfast maybe. So, gifts, giving, celebration and rabbits will soon be on the agenda. And one thing I've noticed here over the years is that there really isn't a second-hand market for anything gift-wise. Well, there never really used to be, but I guess with the advent of social media, buy-and-sell pages, plus more of a collective environmental conscience these days, maybe it is now more of a thing. Well, on last Monday's Trash Talk, which happens during Brunch with Noreen, Marcy Trent Long spoke to the founder of Green Queen, Sonali Figueres, about all of the above. Why do we give gifts? We give gifts um, because we love people. And I was talking to my husband this morning on our regular daily walk and saying that I was coming on the show and saying to him, you know, we're going to talk about one of the taboos of gifting, which is giving something secondhand. And as he always does, and he has so much wisdom, even though I, I probably don't listen to it enough. Um, <laughs> he says that it's not about the thing. It's about the thought. And that really made me pause because I was coming from the point of view that it is very difficult to square the idea, especially in Asian culture, that you would give something old to someone. But it is about the thought. I think he's right. And it's also about the perceived value. For example, think of a vintage bag or a vintage Chanel jacket, right? So much value in that. In fact, yeah. more value than the original. So we, we are not actually anti used or secondhand gifts. We have them in our culture, but it's about how it's framed, right? Um, so I do think that it, it's an important topic to think about, which is when you really love someone and you want to give them something to make them happy, put a lot of thought in the gift. For example, could you get them a first edition of a book that they love? or the vinyl record of their favorite artist, right? Or a really special piece of vintage clothing that, that has a lot of value and, and long time kind of potential. Um, otherwise, I'm a huge proponent of experiences as gifts. Yeah, those are great ones. Right? Um, yeah, I think I love we, them. we need more memories in life and fewer things. <laughs> and as we get older and as we progress through, you know, this acute climate crisis, Everyone's realizing that life is made of moments, um, you know, and not stuff. Yeah. And that's I think the younger generation definitely has that one under wraps. Right. Like they love if I ask my kids or whoever. 
do you want, what do you want for Christmas? This is in the reality, they want a trip to here or they want any other kind of experience. And so in Hong Kong, what would be good experiences, do you think? Oh, there's so many exciting things. A boat trip, a nature (laughs) walk. So many of the charities do interesting things. Uh, The other day I was at the Science Museum with my son and I noticed that there was an exhibition on our geoparks. There's some fantastic excursions to Nine Pin Islands. I mean, gosh, what a beautiful city we do live in. Um, There's great stuff you can do with the Nature Conservancy. You know, also kind of experiences like enrichment around nature. Yeah. I think always makes people happy. Agreed. can you go and see, going to go to Hoi Ha for the day with um, WWF or some other um, organizations and kind of explore Hong Kong's uh, shoreline and beautiful fish, you know, and coral reefs, right. you know? Um, there's so many different types of hikes you can do. Um, somebody for my husband's birthday gave him the gift of paragliding in Sheko. Oh, fun. For the day, right? That's special. These are memorable things. So how did they give the gift? Do they put it in a card and write in the experience? Like, what is a great way um, to present it? Because you know how important presentation is, too, right? Here that, is so, my gift. So that's, that's something that I struggle with as a mom and yeah. as a as a... As a lover of stationery and gifting, <laughs> I really, really struggle with presentation. One, yeah. I grew up in Hong Kong, where, of course, we do love presenting. Yeah. My mother grew up in Japan, where they literally have seven layers of, of packaging <laughs> to give a gift. So I think when I think of it with just a green queen hat on, I'm thinking, ooh, that's wasteful. Ooh, that's excessive. Ooh, that's unnecessary. But when I think of it from an Asian and cultural perspective, there's a respect in creating a beautiful presentation. Marcy Trent Long was talking with Hong Kong's Green Queen, Sonali Figueres, on last week's Trash Talk. You can hear more this coming Monday morning after 10, of course, on Brunch with Noreen. The world lives in constant hope of a real cure for some horrible diseases and conditions. Right at the top of that list is always cancer. Any and all kinds of cancer. Well, this week on Backchat, Danny Gittings spoke with Professor Albert Chan from the Department of Surgery at the School of Clinical Medicine at Hong Kong U. This was all about their new study on how reduce and remove therapy could treat one of the most aggressive cancers out there, that of the liver. Uh, how common is liver cancer in Hong Kong and how, how does it rank against other cancers like breast yeah, cancer? Well, so? well, indeed, yes. Um, global-wise, it, you know, it's basically it's the... Uh, third, fourth most common cancer, and we are seeing over 900,000 new cases per year in the world. And in Hong Kong, it's ranked the fifth most common cancer with over 1,800 new cases per year. So there's actually a huge demand to look at ways to improve the outcomes of inoperable cancer. And with this treatment approach, we are estimating that about 400 to 600 patients will be eligible uh, to consider this treatment approach. But that's quite modest, actually. I mean, you're saying there's 8,000 cases a year, and I think you were saying normally only about uh, 30% are eligible for that's curative right. treatment. So actually, yes. you're potentially talking about, uh, you have to scale up, you're potentially talking about thousands of cases where you would hope to be able to use this new treatment. Yes, that's right. Well, yes, we're a little bit uh, conservative in our estimation. So roughly, because there are other factors that would exclude patients from uh, surgery, uh, such as age, uh, other medical illness. So we, we estimate that roughly, uh, safe to say that about 400 to 500 patients may be, may be able to benefit from this approach. Right. A few years ago, I became aware of a 
company that was trying to um, sell an artificial liver mm, and bring yeah. that into the treatment. Have there been any developments on that? Yeah, well, I think bio-artificial liver is one of the uh, key research area, especially in the field of liver transplantation, because we know that uh, there's always an organ shortage. Uh, we always look at uh, you know, the huge demand for uh, a new liver. And uh, to get around this, you know, to relieve the demand is basically to create, to build a liver in the lab and then put it in the, in the patient. But I think right now the, um, it's still, the progress is still ongoing, but I think the experience is so far limited to animal studies. So we're still a bit, you know, a few years uh, behind before we could even consider to apply this in humans. Now, as far as I understand it, the basic uh, uh, the basic strategy behind your, your new treatment is to to, uh, to shrink uh, cancer, mm. cancers which are too large for yeah. for operation at the moment, and um, yes. you've come up with this very successful way of doing it for mm. or for, for for liver cancer. But presumably, the same principle could also be applied to other types of cancer going forward. Whether the cancer okay, that's a very good point. In fact, I think it's been um, there's been some limited experience in lung cancer. And uh, probably also in uh, kidney cancer, a similar technique could be applied in the future. That's right. So you would hope that this is sort of uh, paving the way for sim similar treatment. Ha have, similar, have similar treatments been tried overseas in other countries? Um, yes, lung cancer. But I think you're right that, you know, the future we're looking at the combination uh, treatment strategy, especially with the use of, uh, with the development of immunotherapy, uh, that is actually a very uh, a breakthrough in cancer treatment because what we're do trying to do is combining radiation and using the patient's immune system. We try to give the immunotherapy to boost the immune system to recognize the cancer cells and then remove it. Surgical professor Albert Chan from Hong Kong University was talking to Danny Gittings on Backchat the other day. Let's turn to money talk for a few minutes. The economic impact of the opening of China's borders was a topic of discussion last Wednesday. James Ross was the presenter and he spoke to Patrick Bennett, a strategist at CIBC World Markets, and Sean DeBau, the CEO of Eurozone Capital Asia, and Barry Wood, RTHK's international economic correspondent. James asked Sean first, what did he feel would be the impact of the upcoming New Year's festivities on travel, tourism, and of course the economy? I think that travel right now in China is very important because both on a humanistic perspective as well as on a commercial perspective, it has been heavily restrained. I think that we're going to see four stages. First is domestic travel. I think it'll be modest over Chinese New Year, but thereafter I, I expect to see a very meaningful acceleration of domestic travel. Second will be uh, people incre uh, improving their situation with their own personal documents and then getting out and traveling regionally. And when I look at that, I think that Thailand is the biggest beneficiary and followed by Japan. It will take some time until we see travelers going from China to the rest of the world, uh, both for geopolitical reasons and as well as just muscle memory, you know, people getting back to where they are. Near term, everyone's eyes are focused on what happens at the Shenzhen border, seeing people, uh, how quickly they'll return from the mainland to Hong Kong. And as we see Hong Kong travelers for family reunification and urgent business needs traveling to China. Patrick, that uh, potential tourism boom, uh, is that going to benefit uh, us across uh, this part of Asia and into Southeast Asia and so on? Look, absolutely. Look, I think we've already seen that um, 
you know the uh, the Hang Seng, you know, since its low, what the end of October has been, uh, you know, been very strong. I think up fifty percent, you know, off its lows. So we're already starting to see that. Uh, and I think perhaps back to the, you know, the, the World Bank's view, I think, you know, they are very much a, perhaps extrapolate what we saw in the second half of last year, uh, perhaps uh, not looking forward, as, uh, you know, as Sean has mentioned there, uh, to some factors which are positive. And, and yeah, certainly travel is one of those. I think, uh, you know, consumer confidence, uh, c- confidence to be able to travel, confidence to be able to get out and, uh, you know, and spend and in restaurants and uh, you know in shopping malls i think is all very important to the underpinning of uh, recovery in the economy in china and in uh, here in hong kong and in uh, in, in southeast asia more broadly so yeah i have a uh, a very normally panglossian view and and uh, again i do have that uh, you know i do have confidence that uh, things will look better uh, as we move into the uh, second quarter i am james ki- mm, Barry. i th- i think patrick's got it exactly right i mean we could have as early as, say, the second quarter of this year, a real rebound in China. And I think that uh, the expectation among American business communities and investors who are active and, and really excited by this unexpected quick reopening of the Chinese economy, there's a lot of room for optimism. And uh, so I think the World Bank's a little bit behind the curve on that one because, of course, they didn't have any of that data when they came up with this latest forecast. Domestic politics in uh, in the U.S. continue apace, don't they, Barry? And uh, uh, I read overnight that um, uh, the new Republican majority in the House is forming a, a, a committee uh, about threats from China. Uh, you know, is it is is that the situation? Is that the view in the U.S. that uh, China continues to be a, a big threat? Yes, that's probably about the only thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on, and it's quite significant. And the fact that the Republicans in this sort of uh, fragile situation they're in in the House of Representatives have moved so quickly on this China committee is somewhat ominous. But uh, these things take time when they go through the Congress. I don't think there's any new restrictions that are likely to be engaged in or approved within the next three to six months. But it's certainly something that bears watching. James Ross and guests on last Wednesday's Money Talk. And he'll be back with you on Monday morning. If you've lived in Hong Kong for any length of time and were particularly partial to a few drinks in Lang Kwai Fong in years gone by, you would 100% have met a legend. On first sighting of a slightly built Chinese gent with a guitar, shades, a massive rockabilly hairdo and, of course, an Elvis suit, you probably, quite expectedly, nearly fell off your bar stool. But then later you realise that you were in the company of the one and only Melvis. And any further visits to Lang Fong just wouldn't be the same without him appearing at your table and hitting you with Viva Las Vegas right between the ears and for a small go-away fee, of course. Sadly, Melvis left the building in 2020, but filmmakers Nicola Fan and Richie Fowler have done something that so needed doing, of course, the Melvis documentary. They told Noreen all about it on Tuesday's brunch. This was the brainchild of myself and our UK producer called Johnny. And uh, Johnny actually, he came here, I think, 12 years ago, and he saw Melvis in his element, which was sort of in the, the mid-2000s, the early 2000s. And he saw him, of course, performing in Lang Kwai Fong, and he said, this guy has a story. I'm going to, one day I'm going to come back and make a story on him. 
And so uh, to try not to be too long-winded, in 2018, he came back to Hong Kong, was out drinking with, with his friends, and he saw him on the streets and he said, wow, he's still around. It's been 12 years or something. You know, I, this is definitely, it, it's a calling. And uh, so that, that time he was only in Hong Kong for two days. And uh, he said, uh, he said to Melvis, who at the time didn't have a phone, he said, all right, can you, can you give me anything, any way to contact you? He said, no. So, so our producer, Johnny said, all right, in eight months time, I'll be back in Hong Kong. Meet me here at this time, at this place. And, uh, you know, and in that process, he introduced me to it, uh, into the project. And, uh, you know, just so happened that as, you know, we went to meet him and that night he turned up, you know, all of a sudden he, he turned up. And so actually, the, the interesting thing was, you know, at, at the start of the project, we wanted to do sort of a, a biopic type thing where we, we get an interesting character and put him in an interesting situation. And so the initial, uh, I guess, like uh, process of it, the initial thoughts of it was actually to take him uh, on a surprise journey. Uh, and, and the idea was to take him to Memphis and the home of Elvis. And uh, maybe even to a, a, like a Elvis convention, and um, you know that was the plan. We we kicked off the the documentary. We started going through with it. Uh, we filmed the trailer, and then unfortunately, you know, the protests happened in Hong Kong. Then we had COVID, and uh, and you know it's really sad. But you know, uh, Melvis's wife even says this, and and she said, you know, maybe it's because he wasn't able to come out to perform in those two years, and that's why he passed mm -hmm. away. Because I think the a, re a really key thing about Melvis was that he wanted to, to embody the spirit of Elvis, you know, and that was, it was a very simple goal of his life. I just want to be Elvis. I want to go out and entertain people. And, um, you know, but of course, when you have a dream like this, which is kind of semi unattainable, you know, how do you, what do you do, you know, and, and, uh, what is the end goal? And so that's why, uh, since his death, uh, you know, and, and very fortunately, I've, you know, I've worked with Nicola before and we work well together and, and she's come on board in the past few months and really just, you know, you know, stuck a, a fire up my butt and, uh, on this project. <laughs> and, um, um, that's and, my yeah, specialty. That's her specialty. Yeah. yeah. She's great at doing it. You know, if you ever need someone, you know, Nicola's to call, um, <laughs> But um, but yeah, so so now the project sort of evolved into this uh, this new kind of uh, piece, which is looking at him as a person, you know, him as a character. Uh, what were the things, you know, the psychology behind it? What were the things driving him? What was this like yearning or this this kind of, you know, how did this passion turn into obsession? How did this uh, you know this man become who he was? And and what sort of mark did he leave on our society? Because you know is a bit of a contentious character not everyone liked him uh people you know people he, he went through some pretty horrendous experiences where people spat at him you know they threw things at him uh but at the same time he was still somehow motivated to just keep going every single night and i think i think it's that spirit that really motivated us to to you know look into this character and, and document it and hopefully uh, you know, preserve his memory within Hong Kong's uh, greater history, uh, you know, memory and history, because Hong Kong is a very fast-paced city, uh, you know, when things come and go very quickly, and unfortunately, people forget very quickly. 
And he, for me, is someone who really represents that, uh, you know, that 90s, that golden era of the 90s booming, booming period, 90s, 2000s, you know, the end of the end of colonialism, end of the British, you know, the British in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, he's he's someone who really fits into that, uh, that era, that atmosphere, you know, that kind of jubilation, that that optimism of what's going to happen next. And so, you know, his crowd was very much, uh, uh, you know, an expat crowd, a crowd that, you know, grew up with Elvis and loved Elvis. And, uh, and, you know, through Nicola and I looking at, you know, his life, we kind of realized that, you know, unfortunately, his demise was partly due to time, partly due to uh, the changing of, of uh, interests, of culture, of, of, of people's entertainment. You know, in, in the 90s and 2000s, that was the real boom time of, of Lang Kwai Fong, as we know. And, uh, you know, as we know, in the past two years, that's really just gone. You know, Lang Kwai Fong, uh, you know, I'm sorry, sorry to Mr. Zeman and stuff, but, you know, it's it's really not looking how it was before. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why, you know, in that sort of jumble of words, that's that's why we were doing this documentary. Elvis was a true, true Hong Kong legend, and we miss him. Thanks to Nicola, Richie, and Noreen. Just search for the Melvis documentary and you'll easily find out anything more you want to know. Let's move on. Lunar New Year is days away, and once again, millions of people around the world will be asking the same question. Why isn't there a year of the cat? Well, have we got news for you? There is, and it's in Vietnam, and it's just about to start. I talked to our brew bureau chief at large, Neil Runciman, last Monday about this. He joins me live every Monday afternoon at about 1.30, live from Ho Chi Minh City for a bit of fun. Anyway, the year of the cat in Vietnam. Here's Neil. The interesting thing for us, obviously, in Vietnam is that uh, we're different. Um, Vietnamese are different from the Chinese Lunar New Year. Yeah. Because you go from either to the, uh, excuse me, to the rabbit. Whereas Vietnam uh, uniquely goes from the tiger to the cat. Right. Now, uh, there are... It'll make a lot of people very happy, that one, won't it, actually? Yeah, well, I'm not one of them because I go out now and everywhere you go, there's huge furry Hello Kitty lookalikes. <laughs> it's bad enough with the nodding one in the window, you know, the good luck cat all the time. But now it's, it's cats everywhere. Uh, I looked up why this might be and... Um, there's not really a consensus on this. It seems to come down to this. The story is that in the uh, race to get to the Jade Emperor yeah. with all of the animals, it was the rat and the cat were the smartest and out in front. But somehow the rat managed to trick the cat when they hitched a ride <laughs> on the naive water buffalo and knocked the cat off and uh, in some versions found it. So the cat got to be first in the Jade Emperor right. and the cat... And the rat and the cat only came in fourth. I think he stopped at that shop behind you and bought a laser pointer. I think that's probably what it was. <laughs> I question this. Anybody who knows cats knows it. It almost certainly was entirely indifferent to the Jade Emperor. Um, and uh, if it was accused of coming fourth, I would suggest the Jade Emperor would have had to take a very careful look into his silk slippers before he put them on that. <laughs> um, so that's it. We have the cat. Uh, other reasons that are given for us, uh, one is that Vietnam is not a country of steps, you know, those great uh, plains, yeah. um, uh, like China. I, I question that. I think uh, there's plenty of room for cats in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. You don't actually 
all about many of them. You see far more dogs around here, but the cats are here. Uh, and the last one, which seems to have taken hold, is that one of the Chinese words for a rabbit is mao, which, of course, is close enough to mao, called mao in, uh, in Vietnamese, which is a cat. Uh, and there, again, another interesting thing is that uh, everywhere in Asia, they're onomatopoeic about cats. It all comes down to the sound they make. It's always meow, meow. Whereas in Europe, we don't do that. That's quite... I can't answer for that. It was just a mild speculation for a Monday morning. Yeah, well done. Well done. So what's cooking up now? I mean, if you remember, Neil's told us in December, he said, well, Christmas is yeah, pretty cool, no worries, but Tet is where it's all at, and that's nearly. Well, um, like Hong Kong, Vietnam opened its borders yesterday, and um, the big change there was the Chinese trying to get back. Yeah. There weren't very Vietnamese coming back into Vietnam, Vietnam but a lot of... Uh, what we would call Chinese exports, experts or um, foreign specialists who've been in the country, also Commonwealth Garden workers, yeah. some of whom haven't been back in three to five years. They're all back to their home country, and they were quite big crowds at the, at the border. Um, perhaps not as great as they were in, um, in Hong Kong, but that's a big thing here. And now everybody is gearing up for Tet. Um, it's going to be a big holiday here. Interestingly, the, the big manufacturers, don't forget here, still the biggest industry here is garments and shoes and right. uh, we have the largest foot, uh, footwear factories making the trainers and so on similar to what's up the coal river and they they employ up to eighty thousand people and more now they've had to lay off a lot of their staff and put some on half time mm. and you would think that under those circumstances come uh, lunar new year they're just going to say well ever so sorry um, have a good time and maybe we'll see you later no on the contrary the people they're keeping on they've raised their new year bonuses by up to 50 percent uh, and the thinking obviously is that if they haven't got the people there if the orders do come back in again yeah. they can't be caught short in the way that many of them were when the covid uh, lockdown was raised mm -hmm. and they had want to do the work so they're trying to hedge their bets as much as they can right. um, um uh, the big push, I think, is still Vietnam is still very heavily dependent on foreign direct investment. That's the countries coming in and, and building up their investments in, uh, in Vietnam. So it's all about foreign capital. And that's why they're still so very, very upset that they're lagging behind on the tourism states right. and doing so well. Now, I mean, I, I've had a look at the airport myself. It, it is it can be a pain to get into Vietnam especially if, unlike Thailand, you've probably had to do a transit stop before you get here. So to, to take a couple of hours in another airport, maybe it's Dubai or Doha or whatever, and then arrive in, in Vietnam and then have to do a visa and wait for an hour, by that time you're tired. It's not the best way to make a first impression. And, of course, this typical thing which the Vietnamese don't even notice, but, of course, all of the officials are wearing army uniforms. So you're back into that uh, somewhat militaristic uh, mode. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody thinks there's much they can do about that, although everybody wants to. Uh, and what they're doing at the moment is desperately trying to come up with uh, tourism programs or projects to, to make the, the place more interesting to people once they are here. Neil Runciman, live from Ho Chi Minh City with great news for cat lovers of the world. So I'll say goodbye to you for now and leave you with Steve James, who two days ago on his Drive programme remembered another, gone too soon, legend. Jeff Beck. Among the most innovative and unpredictable of 60s guitar heroes, 
He brought instrumental firepower to the Yardbirds, of course, which he joined in 65, replacing Eric Clapton. Uh, later, he established the Jeff Beck Group, fronted by Rod Stewart. He won eight Grammys. Recently completed a tour supporting his album 18, and that was with Johnny Depp. But if you want to see a formidable... Formidable... We'll fix it in the edit. If you want to see a formidable legend having a really good time live on stage, I beg your patience as once again I point you to one of my favourite live performances. If you don't own the, uh, the VHS copy, like me, of Jeff Beck's Rock and Roll Party, then you can find it on YouTube where he does this with Imelda May. Somewhere there's music, made the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. There is no moon above, lovers far away too. Till it comes true. If you would come to me soon Until you will have still my heart I hide the moon Shine again. 